0: Hey Jeffrey
1: Darkoya! I'm so Hi excited. Jeffrey. Hi, nice
0: to meet you too.
2: I'm so <laughs> excited to talk to you today. I just know this is going to be lit in my soul and in my spirit, and we haven't even started yet. So, oh. <laughs> so, um, for those of you who are tuning in, we are with Jeffrey Riddick, who is the creator and writer of Final Destination which was actually a multi-million dollar franchise. So we're here to talk to him today and for all of you artists out there, um, for him to answer all of your questions and get his insight on um, what racism looks like in Hollywood. So thank you for being here with us today, Jeffrey.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Racism in Hollywood, there um, there is such a thing. Well,
2: <laughs> well let well, us know,
3: Jeffrey. <laughs>
2: So Jeffrey, from your perspective, we can just get right into it. Um, from your perspective, what does racism look like in Hollywood?
1: Um, you know, I really can start with, with how my career began um, in Hollywood, because originally growing up I wanted to I didn't never know where to look. I have to look up there, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to be an actor. And so I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, and I got an agent. And this was in the early nineties and just non-traditional casting wasn't a thing back then. So my agent literally told me, you know, you're two boy next door. Like if, you know, if you could rap or play basketball, I could get you work, but there's just, I don't know what to send you in for. Uh There's no shows on the air that you would be right for. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was back when I, this is again in the nineties when I realized like, "Mm -hmm, it's going to be really hard to get into acting. So I decided to kind of segue into writing, but it, you know, the timing back then was so much different than it is now. Like if you, you know, if you were light skinned, you know, you could, you couldn't play a, you know, a black ganger or a black pimp, which was really a lot of the roles that were being offered to people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they just didn't know what to do with me. They're like, you know, an ethnic boy next door, you know, the only, the Cosby show kind of broke was breaking down barriers at that time. So you, there really wasn't any place for actors. Um, I've noticed that kind of racism kind of filter over into the writing world because, um, in all of my scripts that I've written, I've always you know, written people of color into my scripts. And then when they're cast, it ends up being all white characters. And you, know, you, you just see the rationale behind it is like, oh, it, you know, from a business point of view, they're just like, well, if we put a black person in the lead, they'll think this is a black movie um, and it won't sell. You know, that's the kind of what people were saying to your face business-wise. Um, but even with Final Destination, you know, that movie took place in New York, and I was very mindful in, in you know, working at the studio in New York. I was like, this should, the cast should reflect New York City, which is a different races, different you know, ethnic backgrounds. Like it should be very diverse. Um, and again, they cast all white actors. And the thing that I think is stressful about how they positioned it is it's always like, well, we just picked the best person for the role. You know, they would never address the, the racism that I was hearing behind the scenes they would just say, well, we just picked the best person for the role. So people, you know, society kind of bought into that reasoning. It's like, oh, well, they're just casting the best people. So then people start talking about now about making an effort to course correct, you know, the industry and looking at more people of color for like writers, actors, directors, um, and things like that. Everybody's like, well, it it should be the best person. And it's like, it definitely should be the best person. But what you don't understand is there's a lot of best people that are black people that that are women that just aren't considered, they're not even considered, they're just not put in the plate. Like when I cast a movie, you know, all the leads that I, all the actresses I get submitted for the leads are white. Like I have to specifically have the casting director put out another, you know, call saying open to all ethnicities. And then a lot of still white actresses. So then I'll sometimes put out a third one saying, looking for actresses of color. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's so much talent out there. and And that's what, you know, this kind of, Wave of promoting diversity when it's, it started with women and it's starting now with people of color, it's, it's not about going out and finding some bad writer and just sticking him or her on a project, it's actually realizing that there's a lot of talented people of color who just, they've just kind of been locked out of the system. Like the default, um, just through the system, has, the default is always straight white men. Like That's what the default is when it, thinking about a director or an actor or you know, a, a writer, it's always the default is you know, white you know, that kind of go to. So I think that, you know, these movements for diversity are very important, but it's also very important to let people know, you know, it's it's fun because you, I mean, you know, I try to, I try to unify people and, you know, I, I know all the tricks that people use to divide us and stuff, but it's really, it is important to let, you know, white people in the industry know this isn't about like giving somebody who doesn't deserve a shot, a shot over you if you, if you're equally as talented. What people are doing now is they're actually saying, oh, there are people of color there are women out there that are really talented that we've never even looked at before so let's look at that let's take a look at that pool and see who we can find and then see if there's somebody who's really good that we've just not that we've overlooked you know um so it's nice to see changes happening um there's always going to be pushback you know like you know i've been in writer's rooms where i'm the only person of color and I hear my white writer friends going well i can't get a job because i'm a white writer i'm like well all the other white writers were working in my room you know it's like it's it's, it's not like we're taking it when you're giving opportunity to somebody you're taking it from somebody else and that's not what giving opportunity is it's about you know here's the pool that we usually look at whenever we want to hire somebody to write or direct and there's this whole other pool out here that has great people in it that we just never even looked over there into that. We've always just looked into this pool. So now we're gonna take a look over here and pick the best from that pool too. So um, it's really nice to see the industry kind of evolving and changing. Um, it's just, you know, again, with a society we have so many trigger issues around race that it's, when you talk about it, people just, you know, hackles automatically go up on, you know, sometimes.
2: Right, right, wow. I'm so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> like, I mean, just, just to hear somebody actually say that, um, that's just so powerful. Because I know sometimes even when I've, like, audition, it's just like, why am I going up against so much adversity? And people are like, no, um, you really, like, it's it. There's, there's really no racism happening. But just to hear you just lay it out, this is what happens, this is what happens in the room, that's really refreshing to hear. So yeah. thank you so much. For sharing that, um, the the next question that we um, have for you is just with everything going on in our current climate in America, how do you personally feel about what's going on?
1: Um, I feel it's about time. Um, I feel like you know because I've been processing this along with everybody else, and um, you know we've we just. You know, again, the the protests now are really focused on police brutality, and again, it's not anti cops; it's police brutality. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we also need to create a space within law enforcement where the good cops know that they can t- turn on their turn in their bad colleagues without being, you know, reprimanded. Like, you know, I know right. a lot of cops you yeah. know yeah. a lot of cops, and they they're afraid to say anything because the blue wall of silence. Um, and for me, I just use this analogy: it's like. Churches that kept pedophile priests and just moved them around to different churches and never had them held them accountable. Right.
3: So right.
1: like, after that person right. hit it, you're not going after religion. And you're going after that one precinct or that one parish that covered for like a bad person. And for me, it's really sad because obviously if you're a person of color, like even when I was growing up, because I grew up in this like deep South, i um, back in the hills and it was me, my sister and two other people of color from grade zero through college, so that's how non-diverse it was. And, and me and my friend were around the same age too, so we both moved in at the same time. So, you know, people were just very ignorant. You know, like you know, racism is learned, so they were very ignorant. And I just remember, even as a young person, when I would watch the news, if there was a black man in the big city in Lexington who committed a crime, I knew the next day at school people were going to start calling me my sister names because they they would they would just see that and be like, oh, did you hear about that, you know, N-word that, you know, shot that, you know, robbed that store and it, so that kind of generational and societal thing has been with me all my life. Like, you know, I've been pulled over, I've been followed around stores, you know, It, you know, I've been called the N-word growing up more than I was actually called my proper name. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not been that long ago. People, people, you know, people seem to think it, it was such a long time ago. And um, so I've been very aware of it, you know, like there were kids, you know, I'm gay, so it doesn't matter. But when I was growing up, like girls at school that had a crush on me, their parents would not let them date me, like, mm-hmm. or, my, or my sister, they would not let them date us. When I got on prom court, they were calling the school, like, I don't want my daughter. Can't you find one of his kind for him to walk with? Like, literally, like, you you, you think oh. we're back in the sixties and this was like in the eighties. So, oh. um. So I've been very aware of this pattern and this kind of living, kind of in fear, like when you're walking home alone or when you're in a store or when the police pull you over. Like, you know, I'm aware of that fear because I've experienced situations that have into that in me, and so I've seen all the shootings of un- unarmed black men, and this is all leading up to a point. Um, it's
2: okay, speak your truth, Jeffrey.
1: But I've seen you know I've <laughs> seen the shootings of so many unarmed black men and the default reaction to that is to always look and say what what they were doing wrong it's like well they shouldn't have ran they shouldn't have resisted arrest. and a lot of them weren't but you know my thing is there's no police training that says if you run from a cop like i've had white friends high on meth run from cops you know and none of them ever got shot you know drunk run from cops none of them have ever got shot um running from a cop does not equal getting shot like very specific rules for that but they were always able to spin this and they've tried to, you know, they brought up George Floyd's past, but really he, the present is they only pulled him over because of that. They thought, you know, that there was a counterfeit bill maybe. So they were only approaching him with that. They didn't have his history in mind, but it took a video of somebody sitting on somebody's neck for like nine minutes and letting him die for people. They had to. people had to wait till it, it came to that point to see something that horrific to finally get it you know like i think that's what this was a straw that broke the camel's back i mean this isn't these protests aren't about george floyd they are he was the trigger for them but it's about all the deaths that have come before him right and and people no matter what color saw this video and were just horrified they're like you know there was no way they could blame him you know for what happened to him like this was just a clear cut case you know of another black man being like killed on camera by a cop
3: right.
1: and you know it's it's sad that it took something so shocking to kind of wake the world up and but it's you know i'm and i'm glad to see see the, the protest happen you know obviously the handful of looters and rioters are the ones that you know certain people are trying to like focus the attention on you know and ignoring the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of peaceful people that are protesting around the world but this has actually brought the world together
3: right um, in a right. way
1: we've never seen before. Okay. Um, so I think it's, a, I think it's a really good thing. And I think it's a yeah. good wake up call to kind of pull the bandage off of, you know, the kind of simmering racism that we've had just below the surface for so long that people, people just love to act like it doesn't, you know, exist anymore. That, you know, we're just, if we bring it up, we're just playing victim because, you know, we're not happy with our lives. And we want to blame somebody, you know, like, I get so tired of hearing the same tribe totally. from my, some of my relatives you know, who are white and I love them to death and they love me, but they just say the stupidest things sometimes, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, that's, you know, that the civil rights movement was in the sixties, you know, that's, you know, it's over. Right. It wasn't
2: that long ago though. People act like, I mean, it's just been so long, but.
1: Uh, Like I was born in 69. So like the year before that, it officially ended. So I was born one year after the civil rights movement and to put that in perspective, you know, I tell people like 9-11 was almost, was over 20 years ago,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, so the civil rights movements maybe only twice as old as that. Right. We're glad we still treat Muslims in this country because of 9-11. And that's only one incident that happened. And you compare that to the civil rights movement, which was like 400 years of slavery and fighting to get equal rights and fighting segregation. Finally, you know, you know, there's so much more history in our country that's rooted in racism that's not just going to disappear you know 50 years after the civil rights movement
3: right right you know
1: so people just need to kind of people don't like to, it's hard to put stuff in perspective for people that don't live it because you know they only know their experiences growing up but you know things had things were bad in the 80s you know
2: right. they were bad
1: in the 90s
2: yeah, they've. I mean, they've always consistently been bad. So, I mean, I think that also too. Uh, me and my roommate, and me and Tisha, have been talking about it as well. COVID put everybody in a place of isolation. I mean, you couldn't. You can't watch sports. You know, there is content on TV, but I think that it kind of made people it's made people like have to pay attention and see what's happening. And that's a beautiful thing about social media is um, it's publicized. So you're going to see it, you know, it's not like it just can be hidden before, like pre social media, you just, it happened. And then you heard about it like X amount of months later, maybe on the news or maybe it just, you didn't hear about it at yeah. all. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then social media can, you know, obviously as, as much divisiveness as it can cause, like it's, it's been a blessing cause you can see this stuff in real time. Like it's, you know, and that's another thing I tell my friends. It's like, if, you know, if there, if there were videos of like cops shooting unarmed white men, they would be online. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like they would be there. Like, you know, it's not this, you know, we're, the videos are reflecting a reality that's happening. And I think, you know, there just has to be reform. Like, I think again, like I have friends that are cops. I have friends in the military, they risk their lives every day. They put themselves in situations that I could never tolerate every day. Um, but again, there, there's a thing where it's like you stand by your brothers and sisters in arms, which you should do unless somebody is a bad apple. And, right. and there's not a way that the system isn't, doesn't really hold the bad apples accountable or make it safe for other people, other cops, the good ones, to like turn in their, their bad colleagues. Um, because everything's about unions and protecting your image and things like that. So, you know, a lot of people have tried to turn this and like, everybody hates cops and it's not that at all. It's just like, we want the good cops to thrive and get some training, you know, if they need training in certain areas, but we want to make sure that the good cops can help get the bad cops out, you know, and not just excuse them. It's like family, you know, (laughs) it is like, you know, you know, how some parents are like, you know, their kid could be like a murderer and they'll still be like. My kid's not a murderer, you know, Mm -hmm. it's my kid, I'm going to defend him. My mom was like, if you're in the right, I will defend you to the day I die. But if you're in the wrong, you have to take responsibility, take your punishment. I'll still love you. But if you're wrong, you got to own up to it and pay for it. Like that's how I was raised. And I think that that's what we're asking from, from police officers, but we also need to ask that from, you know, civilians as well. Like, you know, people are you know there are people that don't like cops just because they don't like authority figures and you know some people have to learn how to behave better towards the police but it's a two-way street and we're only going to get there by demanding change like bigger change and like people communicating and talking to each other and not at each other
0: yeah
1: and like it's my opinion
0: (laughs) what but that's why you're here we want to know your opinion yeah but also um you know the thing that bothers me, and I talk to Darkoya about this all the time. Um, the thing that bothers me about the industry is also the pay disparities. You know the gaps in how people are compensated in the industry, and I've had conversations with you know, people where they say, oh, it's just like what level you're on. But as a person who's behind the scenes, I see that a person who might not have a name who's black and a person who might not have a name who's white, there's still a demand more money for that white person than they would for that black person. Have you had any experiences where you've seen that in this industry?
1: I mean, I've just seen it across the board. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so, sometimes there'll be entry level positions where everybody gets paid the same, but if if somebody's being brought into a company, you know, I, I see that the quote for the woman is lower than the quote for the man, you know, how much you're going to or the black person. Like I've seen that, that definitely, you know, and it's again, it's people will just make excuses or think it's not a big thing, but it's a cumulative thing that affects, you know, again, it's a societal thing that affects every industry, but especially, you know, it's in, it's in Hollywood too. Um, it's crazy. Like, you know, you'll see these, these actors and actresses, even in big studio films, I'm, or a couple of actors, and I'm blanking on their names where they said they won't work in a film unless their co-star, their female co-star gets the same pay as they do. Yeah. You know, they're working with equally known people. And so, you know, if it's there for the gender stuff, it's there for the racial things too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, but I've I've also seen, you know, people who are on the same level, you know, as far as like how popular they are or how many awards they are, and there's still such a huge gap
3: yeah. in
0: their pay, you yeah. know, and it's it's frustrating when you see that because you ask yourself like, will I ever be in a? I mean, I know for me as a woman of color, I ask myself, will I ever be in a position where I have to tell somebody what my worth is? When I'm sitting here, and I see this all the time, especially amongst my peers, that I have to fight so much harder as specifically as a woman of color and as a woman, so much harder for um for compensation, when I have more experience, I have you know more to offer, I have bang ass recommendations, and it's still not enough you know
1: no it's 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 something that it's a problem, and, and again, it's it's going to take a long time to change. But I think I think it's become so glaring now, and part of it is because of COVID happening. And, and you know, I think at the t- people are people. You're right; a lot more people are aware of it, and people are trying to again. It's because it's been kind of politicized too, in a way where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, everybody's paid equal, but you know, women are just you know they they're naggy or they're difficult that they start complaining about not getting paid as much as men. Right. Um, so there's always that default of like, no, there's no difference. And it, yes, we see it all the time. We see, you know, like you just said, people have the, have the same exact level of work and recommendations and references and women are devalued. And then if you're a woman of color, it's even more so. And it's, you know, there's also colorism. Like if you're a dark skinned black woman, yeah, a whole other Thank level.
3: You. Right? I'm happy you said it's that. It's
1: true. <laughs> like I, I have light skin privilege. Like I'm not going to, you know what I'm saying? But I've still yeah. been, I'm still, you know, down south and, certain areas. I'm still just, you know, as, as blacks can be, but
3: mm-hmm. I'm,
1: I do know that I have some privilege because, you know, I'm lighter skinned. Yeah. You know? I yeah. don't, you know, yeah. I'm traveling with, with a group of um, African-American businessmen and, and, and they were all dark skinned uh, black men and they all had suits on every security stop. It got ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got stopped every, every single stop they got pulled, pulled over, checked. And I was like, do you guys, does this happen all the time? And they're like, yeah, And people people understand is like when that happens to you every day stuff like that happens to you every day it keeps away at your self-esteem but it also makes you angry
3: yes yeah
2: you know who opened up about that um taraji p henson she did a video and she talked about how um unequal pay especially uh, for her being an African American woman, it was just starting to weigh at her spirit, and she ha- she opened up about having anxiety and depression, and yeah. how like that really like affected her and was eating at her away at her spirit. Did you yeah. did you see the video? It went have, viral.
1: Yeah. Oh, I yeah. did I'll look that up. No, because mm-hmm. it does because again, it doesn't matter what business you're in. You know, society, you know, has ideals that you're kind of raised in, you know, like, again, you know, when you learn American history, it's, it's you know, the white people did it, created everything and did everything. It's not until you get older and you start looking at the history and you're like, oh my God, African-Americans like created so much stuff and did so right. many things. And like, you know, um, you know, Banyard Rustin, who was, you know, Martin Luther King's right-hand man who helped his I Have a Dream speech, he was a gay black man. But, you know, because he was gay, they kind of brushed that under the, you know, they kind of swept inside. Mm-hmm from the history of the movement, because they didn't want that that out there. And, you know, so whether you're a person of color um, or anything, like when you're raised in a society that's kind of devalues you from a beginning, because again, growing up, the ideal beauty was always, you know, the the white, beautiful white blonde woman or the beautiful, you know, brunette guy, you know, so our ideals of beauty have always been kind of centered on white people. And, and when they really started kind of showing more African-Americans that they were always starting with the light skinned you know, the mixed people like me who kind of had sure. those features. So mm-hmm. our ideals of beauty, our ideals of worth, our ideals of value, you pick that up growing up from a young age and it's something you have to try to unlearn. But then you're also dealing in a business that's very superficial, you know, about looks and talent. Right. And, you know, again, it took, it took like black Panther coming out, you know, <laughs> You yeah, know the,
3: the,
1: the, the movie, that from the people to the costumes to the music, and it did better than most Marvel movies around the world. So it kind of shattered that belief that you can't sell a movie internationally because of that. And people go, "Oh, it's a Marvel movie." I'm like, "Yeah, but it did better than most of them."
0: Right. Ant Man is that good? Hmm? Ant Man. Did, Ant Man didn't do as good.
1: No, no. I think I think Black Panther is probably the fourth maybe the f- fourth of all the, the Marvel movies, somebody can correct me on that, but it, it did like markedly, like it's it was a phenomenon around the world. Mm-hmm. And, and it was all Africa black, like black, black, black. <laughs> so, <laughs> um...
2: It, <laughs> I, heard that some, I guess they were offering some of the roles to lighter skinned actresses, and I forget which ones, but they... Yeah. They yeah, opened up and said they turned it down because they said, this is not a role for me. I mean, even when I, like, even for me, I've been told that because I am dark skin that I have to be a Viola Davis. Like, I can't be commercial because I have to be like, and just give it to them. Oh, yeah. so, so, And, yeah. and so they were opening up and saying like, no, this role, this role in Black Panther, this is meant for like a Lupito or somebody yeah. like that. They're like, this is not for like a Tessa Thompson, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that yeah. was the actress specifically, but it was Ja
0: it was um he, oh it was Yashihidi.
2: Oh right, right right um, right and you know Yara Sahidi she won't play she is like an activist yeah. an activist yeah. like she's just amazing. But um Jeffrey How have you been able to like navigate that with like your mental health and dealing with racism in the industry and whatnot, like keeping your spirits up, staying motivated and just dealing with racism as a whole?
1: Um, You know, I I have to give the credit to that to my mom in a way, um, because she always told me growing up like, Don't be angry. Don't listen to what these people are saying. They're not bad people. They're they're just ignorant. And she meant ignorant in the fact that they had never met a black person before. Mm. Their only idea of black people were what they saw in the news, which was only like free channels when I was growing up and then HBO. So (laughs) they had a very skewed reality. And they they were also passed down the Confederate history. So they they had a very skewed idea of what black people were. And I will say that I kind of saw so many people as I went through the school and left who, have written me over the years and they thanked me because they're like you don't know but because of you i'd like you know i would have never had a you know black friends after school because my parents were like had taught me to be afraid of them or i've married a black person i've married a brown person or i've married an indian like i would have things i I just have opened my heart up to like loving people for people Mm -hmm. and so all that to say like i don't internalize that anger as much um my sister who's you know different than me she's she's the one who you know she gets angry i i do get angry i do get angry but i've always learned i probably just depressed it or suppressed it so it's <laughs> probably not a great thing but i try to just let that roll off my back and and realize it's not to take it as a personal affront against me and just to keep going like i just never i just never give up and i'm always optimistic and i always look for the best in people um and i try to surround myself with really good people um but it's kept me from having you know, it's kept me from becoming like really angry and bitter. Like, and I could have gone that route pretty easily, but, um, you know, again, I, you know, I, and I love my sister death, but she's in the military. She just like kick ass. She just, you know, somebody gives her a side eye. She's like, what'd you say? You know, she's really um, and I've been always like, you know, She's MLK. I'm, Mar- or I'm MLK. She's Martin oh, Luther King.
3: I really love to say yeah. that. So yeah, I'm Martin Luther King. all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm.
1: so, but you need that. You need that yin and that yang um, to make progress because, you know, you can be peaceful all you want, but sometimes people have to, like, shake things up, like, really shake things up.
2: Right. Me and Morley were talking about that. Tish is always just like, listen, you're MLK and your sister is uh is Malcolm X. yeah. Both like, <laughs> of you guys have the same goal, but you do it differently. Yeah. You know, I am just more like peaceful, reserved, and she's just like, no, shoot, like we need to light this thing up. But like you said earlier, you need both. There's yeah. like a time to like be peaceful, and there's a time to, to, to like shut it down. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Absolutely. So I want to get to some of the questions that I'm seeing in the comments. Um, I'm going to put it up on the screen. Someone says, um, I'm a very direct and candid person. What is the best way to deal with Karens in the industry?
3: <laughs> oh, <laughs>
1: we're, we're laughing with you, not at you. Yes. Um,
3: yes.
1: Um, um. <laughs> Why is
2: Karen a noun now?
1: <laughs> yeah, poor, Karen, poor the other Karens that aren't Karens. But... um. Um it's it's a tough one for me because I, my friends will tell you that I'm a non-confrontational person. So, but I was very fortunate when I worked at New Line because I was brought in by the president, so people actually treated me a lot differently than they would have treated somebody else there. So I didn't deal with that a lot in the workplace. Um and I haven't really dealt with a lot of it in my life, but I think that if you're your authentic self, um you can always stand up for if you're coming up from a position of standing up for yourself. I think that that will get across to somebody. I mean, because sometimes you're just dealing like with, you just deal with really bad people in this business and people with temp- tempers. And if it's getting to a point where it's making you uncomfortable or not feel safe or doubting yourself, or it's not good for your mental health. Um, I think you stand up to them and you report them to human, you know, the human resources department. Um, you, because you, the people that threat, the, that's the thing is like, nobody, in, you know, people that work in this industry, a lot of people work from fear and that, oh, I can't stand out to this person because I'll never work in this town again. No, There are maybe five people, if you pissed off, could maybe blackball you in this business. But people like to have that air of like power about them, where you think like if you say something, like I've worked with some shitty people that I can't believe that they're they've been hired, you Ew. know. People have called their agents and managers, like, we know they're awful, we're gonna fire them. They don't fire them, they keep working. So, if you're yeah. a good person and you stand up to a shitty person, that person may be like, oh, you'll never, I, I've been told like five times I've never been working in this town again. <laughs> I just laugh. I'm like, really? Really? Um, so, just don't be afraid. Like, I, what I would say, just don't be afraid. And, you know, all we can do is demand the respect that we deserve as a human being, first and foremost, and then as a professional. Um, so if you, if you're dealing with them, you can try to have a polite conversation with them. You can kind of pull them aside, um, and just see, see if there's an issue and just, uh, you know, have a conversation with them. But if they're, they're if you know, they're not the person that can have a conversation with you, I would, just, I would go to human resources first, just as a, so that there's a record of there being an issue that you've tried to resolve that way. If it ends up being unresolvable, you don't get thrown under the bus by it. But I would say definitely don't take it. You know, I know a lot of other people would advise and just be like, oh, just keep your head down and keep going. But I just don't think anybody in this world is better than anybody else. I don't care what position you hold. So you can respect people, but they have to respect you, too. Um,
0: I'm glad you said that, because we were going to ask the question of how, you know, what will you tell someone who's afraid to stick up? when they see an injustice, you know? And I think you kind of answered that. But also I think another part of that is is that we need to have more people who are diverse behind the scenes
1: because
0: because then it wouldn't happen. Like for me, when people brought issues to me, whether it's with um, and I have had I had I have had human resource issues where people have been called out of their name for their, you know, for their sex or for their, you know, for that for who they are, you know, and I've had to say, no, you're not going to do that again, and if I hear that again, we're going to have a problem, and you don't want to have a problem with me yeah like <laughs> like I've had to I've had to go there with people, and but that's because when you have diversity behind the scenes as well, yeah. then a lot of that is taken care of, so I'm a huge person who really tries to put more diverse people you know um behind the scenes and empower, which comes to my next question, guys, we get from Jamaya Kip, who we love as a filmmaker. He says, thanks for talking about diversity in casting. What What are the steps independent filmmakers and producers can take for diversity in crew?
1: Um, I think probably for from my no- limited knowledge, because crewing up is, you know, usually like a lot of the producers handle that. And, and yeah. But I, you know, I know, I look for people for experience, but I'm also like, if you see somebody, you know, if you see somebody who's like, if you see a female, or if you see someone of color, or you see somebody with a disability, who's really good in this thing, like, let me just see their resume. Like, I kind of put that out there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that I'm looking, because if you don't ask for it, nobody's going to automatically give it to you. So I get, I do have an answer. I would just say, I would say when you're assembling your your crews like just ask you know just be like hey do you because again it's there's a whole pool out there that is never the default pool for for crew um so you but if you ask for it you'll find it and um to your point about feeling comfortable on set like you know i know the first because i just i directed my first film and i'm not trying to plug it at all but i just the first day of set uh, you know the first thing i said after you plug it. You you know. plug
3: it right. I was just about to know, you know, you know, you know, plug it. it. Plug it out there. What? We you
1: said, go ahead and plug it. it. Plug it in. Oh, no. But, um, you know, first of all, we cast a beautiful, talented Courtney Bell, who's a beautiful, dark skinned black actress, and she's amazing as the lead. But on the first day of filming, like after I thanked everybody for being there, I said, I want us to have fun, but I said, I will not tolerate sexism or racism or homophobia on this set. And I said, if anybody has a problem with somebody on this cast in, or in this crew, you come to me directly. I'm giving you permission to come to me directly when, whenever nobody's around. Like, you come to me and tell me. Because I know you might be nervous talking to somebody else. Come to me and tell me, and we'll deal with it. And we didn't really have... I found out after the shoot that there was, like, one person in the crew was like, who was, like, hitting on a makeup girl all the time. But... Yeah, you know, but, there, but it, as far as anything beyond that, like we didn't have any problem on that set. And I think it's up to the filmmakers to be aware and let, their, let the people on their, in their cast and crew know that this is a set where this kind of behavior won't be tolerated, um, where you want diversity. You know, when, again, when you're out seeking crew members, um, you know, a lot of times the director can set the tone. I mean, the producers obviously have a say as well if they're financing it, but, you know, I think the directors really set the tone.
0: Creating that safe space. Yeah, I mean, I I agree um, as well, and I I just have no tolerance. You know, I'm kind of like that fire when I'm on with <laughs> people.
1: Yeah, it's exhausting to be tolerant. It's it's exhausting to be tolerant of intolerance. You know, yeah. We we, yeah, spend, we spend our whole lives, I feel like, walking around on eggshells, having to explain, right. mm-hmm. people that don't think it's there who are you know what I'm saying it's just like you feel like you're spinning your like I feel like you know I'm 50 years old explaining just constantly explaining no well this is you know this is why racism is still around it's still a thing where I'm not just making this up I'm not I don't I don't blame racism for anything in my life except for the racist shit that's happened to me Mm -hmm. you know like that stuff that I call out like I don't say oh I could have you know I'd be at this level if I if I was white I don't say any of that stuff But I do know the racism that I've I've experienced and just in the business, but also just as a human being, you know, even still walking down the street, like, you know, it's still that stuff still happens. Um, And so, yeah, it gets it does get it's very exhausting because it feels like you're the explaining. You know, you're the explaining black person.
3: Oh, <laughs> <a> black person. <laughs> like
2: we were so we were talking to Melvin last night about this. And I don't know if you've ever if you've ever experienced this, but me and Tish went to an industry party. Um, I don't know, what was that, last year? And yeah. I literally earlier that day had got pholox in my hair and I think, oh I was about to go to Mexico. And literally we walk into This is a film Tish was doing. So I just was coming for the party, industry party, right? We walk in and I have never met these white people in my life. I think it was like we were the only black people there, right, Tish? Were there? Mm -hmm. And they were like, hi. And I went to touch my hair. And I was like, wait a second. Even (laughs) if, like, but wait, but I just have to say it because my thing about it is anybody, white or black, if I don't know you, why do you think that it's okay to get in my personal space and touch me? And then on top of that, something as intimate as like my hair. It's just, yeah. it's, it's like ridiculous. Have you ever been in a situation like that where it's just like, I mean, well,
1: well it's, you know, it's, it's, be it's, it's a weird thing because there's a part of it that stems, there's a part of it that stems from it's, a, it's different and exotic, so we have to pet it. And um, I remember when I was in school, like, you know, we used to have a, a preacher come in every week and he would, you know, do this like little song and we'd all be little animals. And, you know, I was a fuzzy, wuzzy bear and he'd, thank the Lord for my fuzzy, wuzzy hair. And I always rub my hair. And so people like, <laughs> because it's, because it's different, people just want to, t- It's you know, they want to touch it, but you don't understand that you're, you are, you're violating somebody's personal space by just assuming that you can play with their hair. And then, and also it's, it seems harmless but again if you grow up with people like touching your hair all the time right. it feels like your your yeah. face is being invaded your whole life and so that one person it's like oh you're overreacting it's like you don't know how many fucking people just come up to me and touch my hair right without ever yeah. asking or just thinking it's okay like if i went up to a, a a woman a white woman and been like oh i love your hair they'd be like uh, arresting me as a pervert you know
2: (laughs) not a pervert like you said you you just you become the person that teaches. I literally said that, I said, oh, it's okay. I'll be the person that teaches you. So when you, because the person was like, oh, is that a really white thing to do? Me and Tish just laughed. And we were like, okay. Cause we're used to being the only person, only one in the room. We're used to being like the person that's like, oh, okay, you're that type of black person where you're more tolerant of it. Cause I'm more malmannered, right? So then I'm the one that teaches you. So you don't do it to somebody like our sisters. <laughs>
3: I'll get this <laughs> so you know, it's just a natural yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that 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 does happen often. You know, like, I'm like, all right, sure, whatever. But you know, another thing that
0: um, I follow you on Twitter, you oh. know that, right? So I'm always like, 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 I love. <laughs> like what you what you have to say so one thing that I wanted to ask is what are the things that you feel like you're contributing to like in homophobia and racism and prejudice here in this industry so that we can move forward right. what do you um, think is your contribution
1: I mean I I hope my contribution especially is a lot more going forward where I have where I have more control over the films I make where I'm going to you know be producing a lot more um directing more and now I'm able to do more, you know, like again, like I directed my first feature and I was able to cast who I wanted to, you know, and that's a dream of mine. And, you know, I have other dream projects where I want to have, you know, gay characters in them. And, and again, for me, it's again, it's the Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King. Like, you, I think you can have purely black stories about the black experience, which I, I think are so important because the more we can learn about other people's experiences, it enriches us, but it lets us understand each other better. But I also think representation is important. Like, you know, I watched, I point this out, I watched the first Spider-Man Homecoming movie. If you watch that movie, that's the most diverse, as far as different diversities, the most diverse movie in the world. I mean, he was in love with a black girl. He had a, fell in love with another one. His best friend was Indian. There's like Latinos. There was a Sikh walking in the cafeteria. It was so diverse. I actually started getting a little uncomfortable because I wasn't used to seeing that much (laughs) every every single ethnicity was in that freaking movie and they didn't make they didn't point it out it just was uh, presented the world like it should be like this is the world it's diverse there are good people there are bad people everybody's a person and that was the first movie I was just sitting in the theater going I'm feeling uncomfortable because of diversity because I'm not used to seeing it um so I think you know for for race all I can do is try to have characters that are interesting complex people on screen um for homophobia it's the same same thing you know i just i decided very early on that i wasn't going to live in the closet even if i was going to be an actor i wasn't going to live in the closet because and again i don't judge other people who make a different choice um the only people i judge are politicians that are in the closet that like fight gay and lesbian causes and yet they're going out and like hiring hookers and right. you know, having sex all the time and I, I actually even don't appreciate that with actors who lie and stuff like that but um I, all I can do is just be my authentic self and try to create opportunities for other people of color for for gay lesbian transgender you know just everybody like I, uh, you know I have grown up you know, my mom taught me to love everybody we're all part of the human race no one's better than anybody else so I just try to come from a place of love and when I do things so Um, I hope to contribute more um, as I, you know, shift more into directing and producing. Um, Because when you you just write, again, you can write as many diverse characters as you want, but then the casting people and director ends up casting whoever they want, so.
2: Right. We were talking about that yesterday with Melvin. Um, He was saying that um, artists have to really put themselves in a position of ownership um, because that's where you can, kind of net you can be in a position where you can offer people jobs and you can have more diversity um on set and in in your films would you offer like that same advice that we need to be put in a position of ownership and like how do you start that for like our artists on here who are like i'm an actor i'm a writer i want to do this and this and that but maybe they don't have the resources or the tools like what
1: my advice and i usually give this to everybody because the the great thing about the world we live in today is, you know, you can make a movie on an iPhone. Like when I was growing up, you, you, you know, you had the big clunky, you had to take a big picture with the big cameras. but Now they have iPhones that you can actually make movies on. So if you're a, if you're a storyteller, you know, there are ways to get your stories online. There are screenplay competitions that you can, you can enter, but also it's really great to find a creative community around you. Um, one, you know, there's, you know, you've gotta find like supportive supportive people that like kind of lift your spirits and like li- want the best for you but find find a creative commu- community around you and even even if it's online you know because i know we're in we're in kind of covid times right now everybody's yeah. zooming out with me. <laughs> um but you can find like creative like minds um to network with um and to make stuff like a lot of directors i know they started making stuff when they were young like with with their little cameras and stuff like that but you can shoot movies now, you know, with an iPhone, and it's really about getting your work seen by people and getting it out there. Because um, I think if you make quality, consistent, good work, people will will eventually see it. Right. But not putting yourself out there, like you know, my journey was definitely a journey of you know persistence, but also luck. Mm. But I realized the luck that I had wouldn't have come if I hadn't been persistent. Mm. Like. Right. I got my first job at New Line Cinema because I wrote a letter to Bob Shea when I was fourteen from Kentucky with a story for a nightmare on Elm Street and he sent it back and I sent it back to him and I'm like, look, buddy, I've seen I spent three dollars on your movies. I think you can take five minutes to read my story. <laughs> yeah. I was fourteen, I didn't have a master plan about, oh, I'm gonna network with this guy. You know, like that I was just going on instinct. Like I had a story I right. wanted to tell mm-hmm. and I wanted him to read it, and he read it. And that led to me getting an internship when I was 19 at the studio. But I didn't plan that when I was 14, but I still did, I was still pushing. So, and when I went to, to New York to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, my college, uh, Berea College, which is an amazing college in Kentucky that, that um, serves under privileged kids who don't have like a lot of income and they also are very diverse, um, amazing college, but they didn't have a program for arts but I was able to work with my Dean to like retro, like fit one of the scholarship programs. I had to make it into an art one to go to New York. Mm. And when I went to New York, I just happened to meet a casting director's daughter in class. I didn't know she was a casting director's daughter and everybody else in the class knew it, I guess, cause everybody was like sucking up to her. But I was, she ended up gravitating to me cause I was the only one not trying to suck up to her. Cause I had no idea who she was. She mm. just was really nice. And so we ended up being friends. So she started getting me some extra work. So mm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, the whole thing behind that is if you keep moving forward towards your goals, doors will open and sometimes you won't see them mm. if you're too focused, but it, the doors will only kind of open if you're kind of there by the door. Like it doesn't matter if you're not there.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: and right. I, I started off wanting to be like a teen heartthrob in Tiger Beat um, and realized the acting wasn't gonna happen. So I'm still, but I'm still in the business that I love. You know, I just took a different route now to work into it. So you have to be ready to kind of roll with kind of how the flow life brings you. But you have to keep going towards that goal.
2: Mm. Um, I'm so happy that you said that because we were just talking about that with the girls on Tuesday, putting yourself in a position to be found. Uh, And just everything that's happening with the quarantine and COVID, I was saying that I really think it's going to be a great time for Black people uh, once we're out of this, just because of all of the different initiatives and reforms Going on, so that's very powerful what you said. Be by the door. I'm taking <laughs> I,
0: I also think a, it, a beautiful thing about also being a person because I, um, and Jeffrey, you know this, I started out as an actress, and you know. It 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 was really interesting to me. I quit being an actress because I hated and I saw mistreatment. I saw. I said, "Oh no, no! I have a I have too much of an attitude for this. <laughs> they will not ever hire me." So it was very very early on that I felt that okay, this is going to be an issue because I just don't tolerate certain things. So I said, I have to be in the room so that I could like help other people not have to deal with what it is that I was seeing. You know, yeah. that, that has been my thing for my career. And I, I usually get, and usually I'm like the only woman too in the room yeah. a lot of the time. So usually it's just me and them. And I'm like, OK, OK, you're not going to win. <laughs> so okay. let's, just, let's just stop. Um, we're not going to win. you know. And I think you know the good thing about that too is that you always can have the opportunity to put yourself in your own content. you know. Yeah. Um, that's the beautiful thing about creating your own content is it gives you a choice of yeah. whether or not you want to put yourself behind a screen or whether or not you wanna do a whole full m- movie starring you. I've had, you know, you know how many creators I've worked with <laughs> where I'm like, who's directing it? It's me. Who's starring yeah. it? It's me. Who's the writer? It's me. I said, okay, me, 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 <laughs> you know? <laughs> Let's just yeah. get it done.
1: Great. I'm a very Let's big believer. It. I'm a very big believer. Um, Cause if you're an artist, yes, at the end of the day you wanna make a living at it. But you're most people are artists in whatever fashion they are is because they're passionate about their art, whether it's painting, acting, singing they they have a calling in life, and they can't imagine doing anything else and if that's your calling, then you just keep creating, keep creating and and eventually the success will find you. you know
0: Oh I agree, I agree, and I think also um most of the people who I'm seeing who aren't being categorized. And I talked a little bit about this yesterday, like it's a they don't know what to do with this child. They're just letting her do whatever she wants yeah. to do. She does whatever she does, the comedy, she does the drama, she does her own content. And I think having your own content and having an audience that backs you is such a beautiful thing because one thing that I do feel about Hollywood is they're gonna go where the dollar goes. wherever the dollar goes, they will go. Yeah. Which puts so much control into the creators, meaning that if you're a person of color and you're creating, you can have control. You yeah. know, I hear it all the time. I just feel like it's it's just like it's out of my hand. I don't know what to do. I feel like helpless. And it's just like create your own content. Yeah. Create your own take control of your own story
1: you know, and now, and now the industry is very much into like IPs, intellectual, something that's already out there, like yeah. property. So, you know, if you, yeah, if you create, if you create a one woman show or a one man show or a web series that you're just doing with your friends, but it's very authentic. Cause that's, that's the thing that each of us as a person brings to whatever art that we do. The things that make us us and how we view the world are what make us stand out from everybody else. doesn't mean we're better than everybody else. It means that we stand out from everybody else. So the more that you, tap into what you're passionate. I just happen to be passionate about killing people, not in real life. So I'm really cool in real life. I've not told anybody, Um, but if you follow your passion and stuff that brings you joy in life, that'll come across in your work and people will eventually, Somebody's going to see that, you know, like James Wan, um, who's, you know, fantastic career in the industry, but he saw a short for, for lights out and fell in love with it and bought it as a feature.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, if that well, guy never made that short, he never would have had the feet. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, even, even if the, you feel like the stuff that you're doing is small, it still matters mm-hmm. and you want to get it out there because people are looking for new artists and looking for new singers and you can find your fans before you even find it. So is going to put money into you, you know?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm no i i definitely agree which kind of brings me into um, this next question there's i, I ever since um, you know the world has been lit on fire which george floyd you know i keep people keep asking me well what can i do how can i help you know what is it that me as a white person or you know, even Asian people, they're like, well, what can we do to help? So what would you advise those who are out there in Hollywood or in other industries? What can they do to help, you know, move things forward with people of, co- people of color across the board or disability, like all these things. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, think, I think the first thing we can do is acknowledge the issue um, mm-hmm. and then list- listening is important. Because again, it's nothing, nothing shuts down conversation more of you know, when I start to talk to one of my, my relatives, so again, my white side of the family, they would, they literally would take a bullet for me, but they still say the most racist things without realizing it's racist. So I, I start mm-hmm. having a conversation with them, and they're like, well, you know, you're not like those black people, but, you know, they're lazy and they do this and they do, I'm like, God, you know, you're just talking the KKK talk. Like, um, so until there's, no, until there's an awareness, that there's a problem, it's not like a knee jerk thing. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, now I know. Okay, there's a problem. How do I fix it? It's just like because we all have to look into ourselves first of all to see if we're doing stuff that's contributing to this problem. Um, but I think if we want it, to, it's just starting off being a good person yourself and examining your own prejudices, your own misconceptions. I mean, I have, I have, you know, I have internal, I have some internalized homophobia. I have to deal with. I have some internalized racism I have to deal with. You know, I have internalized all kinds of issues. I'm a, I'm a human being. We all do. Um, but I think once we kind of acknowledge that within ourselves, then it, it just starts from you being a you as a good person wanting to help your fellow man and woman, your fellow human being and realizing, OK, you know what? These people are have not really had a chance at, at the spotlight yet you know what I'm saying? Like, so let me, if I'm in the spotlight, let me bring them into the spotlight or let me help shine the spotlight on them. Um, and again, it's not about who's better. And it's not about if we're focusing on black people's lives that we don't care about other people's lives. Mm. We care about all people's lives. Right. But again, in this moment in time, unfortunately we've seen just black people being, unarmed black people being killed at an alarming rate. And also, not involved because I know Candace Owen, who, whatever, Um, you know, she keeps putting up these stats about, you know, black criminals and how they get killed. Now, any white criminal, but what she doesn't break it down into is like a lot of the black on black crime is like gang crime, Mm -hmm. you know, and they use statistics from like there's a study done, I think, 2006 or eight back, and that included like gang killings and things like that. The people that we're seeing getting shot on videos aren't in gangs, you know, they aren't armed. So that's the problem. Is there's we've unfortunately we've seen that. So it's bringing the racism that's again been bubbling under the surface because it's been a part of our it's a part of our history. Like racism is a part of our history, and it, our history is built on it. And it took up till fifty years ago to stop having us being segregated.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Only fifty years ago. Again, that's not friggin' long. So everybody born right. before then. Was born into a time when segregation was cool, and they they were raising their kids to think it was cool. And kids have had, you know, that. So it's a lot of unlearning that we have to do, and a lot of it's acknowledging the pain that's out there, the hurt that hasn't been discussed, the fear that's out there. Like, I I throw these examples out just because this is how I talk to people. But you know, it's easy to throw like if you throw a phrase like white privilege around. White people automatically get defensive about that because mm-hmm. all, you know all my poor white relatives in Kentucky are like, well where's my privilege mm-hmm. and I explained it to them like, I have male privilege my, one of my privileges as a male is i don't have to walk at home at night with a can of mace because I'm worried that some guy's going to rape me mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying there are certain things as a man that I don't have to even that never cross my mind to worry about that women have to worry about all the time, and that's the same thing with white privileges there's things that you as a, as a race don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Like you know, you don't have to worry about like if if you get pulled over for a traffic ticket, you might get shot. You know, if you if you mouth off at the cop, you might shoot you. Or you don't have to worry, like as a white guy, if you're walking down the street, you don't pass women who like clutch their purses. You know, because they're afraid you know, they make you feel like a criminal and you don't get followed around stores. And those are like micro things. But when you have a lifetime of that, it really it's it's again, it's like telling somebody who's had like one thing like if you you know I am i can't even think of an example for right but it's just like one thing like if if you when you deal with this stuff over and over your whole life it's hard to just keep brushing it off you know and being like all right I'll, you know because it's so many you're just excuse it you make excuses and you're like okay that was no big deal I'll let it go I won't argue this time I'll let the let the asshole follow me around the store I don't care like I'm not going to say anything I'm you know Right. But it it, do, it builds up because in, in a way, it's like, it's not in a way, it's telling you that you don't belong. It's telling you that you are a threat. It's telling you that you are not as valuable as somebody else when people treat you that way throughout your throughout your life. So it's not playing victim to acknowledge that. It's just acknowledging it. Mm. And, you know, again, I think how our, our you know, my, my white family and our allies can help is just start off being a good person and looking in your own circles to see what you can do to, to be more inclusive and to listen to your friends of color. Cause I, some of my relatives, I'm like, you know, they're like, racism is around. I'm like, do you have any black friends? I'm yeah. I said, go talk to them and see if they've ever experienced racism. Just, just, I said, have you ever talked to them about it? No. It's like, well, then you can't say racism around cause you haven't talked to somebody who's experienced it. So I think listening and talking and making your, your circle, your, world, a better place, will spread out and kind of keep that growing. That sounds very Oprah, I know, but I love
2: (laughs) it. That was so powerful, Jeffrey, (laughs) that, I mean, we even have a comment. This is a great way to explain what white privilege is to people. um, Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm taking that in because I've had so many of my white friends literally text me saying like, Hey, I don't know if I ever did anything to offend you, but like, did I, like I was telling Tish last night, I had, I had a friend from undergrad who was like, I don't know if I ever came off as this or that. So, but I mean, for me, I'm happy that people are recognizing their white privilege, you know, like, I feel like I still know there are so many white people who are recognizing their white, white privilege. And then there are still so many white people who are just going on like it doesn't matter. I know a lot of very affluent white people who are in the middle of Connecticut, 10 miles in their huge whatever house, even though they have a house in Brooklyn, and or somewhere or L.A. and they are they don't have to hear the firecrackers, which I don't know if you guys have if that I think that yeah,
1: people, people are shooting them at night. Yeah.
2: Yeah. They don't have to hear the firecrackers. They don't hear the helicopters. They don't have to see the protests when they go to the grocery store because they're they're secluded and they don't they don't they can. That is part of the white privilege is that they can choose to, like, be in it or be out of it. Yeah. And those are the ones that are like the issues, not yeah. not our allies. I'm happy people are people yeah, are yeah. acknowledging it. So and yeah, this, yeah,
1: and those people in well, I won't even. Get, I was gonna say those people in Connecticut are watching Fox News, so you know they think Seattle <laughs> is like a war zone and the blacks Black Lives Matter is coming to get all their white white daughters. So um.
3: uh, right, <laughs> right, right, right.
0: But also, I just wanted to point out um, a couple of things too in, in Mississippi. You know, their interracial dating only became legal in the early 2000s. Also, they had two proms in Mississippi. Oh yeah, um, exactly. one was white, one was black, and they just they actually put it together like somewhere between 2000 and 2010. I remember that happening. And, mm-hmm. and also, when people talk about murder, there is a thing called pop. You know, murder in the black community. There is a thing called proximity murder, which means if you have a bunch of people of the same race in the same vicinity, there is going to be, you know, um, a higher rate of of murder in that area that happened with Italians when they came to this country, it happened with the Irish when they came to this country, you know, it happens in a lot of communities, but they always point it out in the black community. I mean, there are so many statistics on that, but they always bring that statistic for the black community as a way to segue of not talking about race, you know, and how it affects the country. So, there are a lot more statistics, but people just don't want to, they don't want to upset the mass.
1: Or they don't want so they to dig into them. And I want to bring up that Mississippi prom because I think that that also taps into something that I experienced because I knew that the, I saw a, a pretty good, I, I don't know if it was Dateline or 2020 did a report on that. And when you went down to Mississippi, people, people were actually okay with that. Mm-hmm. And that I'm trying to figure out how to how how to say this. And so hopefully it'll come together. But, you know, that that's part of growing up. Like when I when I was in school and we had a variety show, you know, one of the girls in my class at Aretha Franklin, she came out in blackface. Now, this was back in 87. These again, these people had never seen a black person except me and my sister. So they they knew nothing about the history of blackface, knew nothing about it. I never thought anything of it. You know what i'm saying because that was a com- that was the community that i grew up in and it wasn't until you know learning more after school because again they didn't teach really blackface in, in high school um it wasn't until i left that area you know and learned about it but that was something that was done in 87 and like that video ever came out of that girl i mean she's still she's a great person and again that was just and even when i saw it it was just like oh this is she's it's funny because i didn't know the history Um, so a lot of times in society we'll meet people like we were down in Baton Rouge shooting and, you know, they were talking about the Confederate monument issue. And, you know, we had an older, uh, black woman driving a cab and, you know, she, she, you know, she was telling our white producer, like, you know, I don't, I don't really have a problem with it. It's been here forever. So, you know, it doesn't bother me because she's learned to accept it. But what I tell people about the Confederate stuff is those monuments weren't built after the Civil War to honor these war heroes. Those monuments were built after the Jim Crow laws started passing, which was 50 years later, to mm. segregate people. So they started building these monuments to let black people know you're not safe or wanted in this, this area. So mm. the history of these monuments, they, they're, they're not, they weren't created to celebrate people. They were created after Jim Crow passed the segregation laws to let blacks know this, this town you're not wanted in we're for the confederate, you know, confederacy. Um, so, but it, even as black people, like, you know, I talked about how we have to educate people. There's also, there was a long time where we just kind of had to say, Oh, well, this is the way things are,
3: right.
1: you know, like, this is the way life is. So we're going to have to accept it. You know, when I heard this stuff in New York, I, I got upset for a little bit, but I'm like, well, I guess that's how Hollywood is. So I'm going to start writing,
3: mm. um, you mm. know,
1: it's just, you know, so there's a, there's a part of even our community where we've been inoculated to the racism because we just assume it's right. like, I honestly never thought we'd have a black president before I die.
3: died. Mm. Like,
1: I yeah. Never ever crossed my mind. Like it blew my mind when Obama got elected. And I'm very like optimistic about the world and how it's gonna go. I just didn't think that would ever happen because I'd been inoculated to see, you know, see the world through, as a person of color who sees the racism around them, sees it as a part of life and something I might have to deal with doing what I can to change. But then, you know, part of, it, that's almost like accepting defeat in a way when you're like, well, that's just how the world is and we're just going to have to deal with it because you're devaluing yourself in a way. It's,
2: it's another like, form of oppression. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, it is. Keep you oppressed through laws, keep you oppressed through your mind, keep you
0: oppressed with your spirit. It's yeah. All, it's all oppression.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Also, uh Giovanna pointed out that um, if you over police a community where everybody's a suspect, you will be by default fine and report more crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was actually that was actually pretty, pretty good, Jafana. And you know, people are all in their statistics here in the comments. No. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see my comments, look at this Instagram page. <laughs> you know, the flag just came That's down. My mom. That's my mom.
3: Oh,
0: (laughs) in Mississippi. Your mom's from Mississippi, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I was literally, um, when you brought that point up, I didn't go to Mississippi, but I know my mom's from Mississippi. And when my sister went to our family reunion, I couldn't go. I think I was in grad school at the time, but she said, it's just like the black people live on this side of the track and the white people live on this side of the track. And that's just the way that it is because my grandparents, they left uh, let's see, they left Mississippi when my mom was like five um, because my grandparents were like, we're, we need more opportunities. We're not going to deal with this. But they, I mean, my grandmother picked cotton. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because part of the the systematic oppression is also through, it's financial too. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. when, you, when you come from Mississippi, Tish, you're from South Carolina, the types of jobs that you can get are they're they're low paying jobs and um, then if, yeah
0: oh, technical, uh low class you know jobs that's how it was
2: yeah but that's a way of still keeping people you know confined and keeping people down and then if you don't have access to certain resources like you talked about the program that you were able to bree is it brie college? college yeah you know if you're able to get plugged in with a teacher or with a program where you can be offered education and resources so you can create a better life yourself. But I think that sometimes as artists, because we're in New York, because we're in LA, we think that this is just the way that it is. Everybody's cool with minorities. Everybody's cool with LGBTQAI. Everybody's cool with, you know, everybody that's just super like Boheme, and then you go places and you're like, oh, this is really the world at large. You know, sometimes we're as yeah. we live in a bubble. But I think that's why art is so powerful because media that controls the tone. Media yeah. controls the tone. So that is a way that I think that's why so many minorities, so many marginalized groups are uh, migrate towards. Doing something artistic is because that's the way that you can change the narrative.
1: You can change a narrative, and it's something that's personal and it's create it, in, it, in it. With art, the potential is limitless. With art, you can dream with art. And you know, also, I wanted to touch on education because you brought that up too. And it's like, aside from job opportunities, it's like good public schools and predominantly pe- you know, areas with people of color and poor people. You know, they're so focused on like shipping vouchers to like get kids to better schools when they should fucking fix the private school. I mean, the public schools.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Most of the kids in this country go to public school. And yet we have a horrible school system that doesn't pay teachers well, that doesn't, you know, know, poor kids are like, you know, struggle to get to. And it doesn't prepare them to go to college. So you're keeping also this whole cycle of people who aren't, you know, they're going to get through high school but they're not gonna have enough skills to, to go beyond that, even if they don't go to college to find jobs. So it's a whole cycle that we've kind of set up with society. And, you know, certainly black people have been at the, the bottom of that totem pole, you know, until the yeah. movement passed and still it was like, all right, well, we'll take down the whites only signs, but we still don't want you here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's a it, societal thing that we really, you know, it's, and I think it takes each of us, you know, to do our part to make mm-hmm. the world a better place.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I, I agree. And also these schools, you know, they have so many students in a class for, for one teacher. You know, teachers really can't put their attention on students and their special needs because yeah. each each student learns differently. And I know a lot of people who teach, they already know that, you know, you have different styles that people learn Auditory styles and visual styles and mm-hmm. reading styles and how can you really teach when you have thirty people that you have to teach? <laughs> you know that it's just every it's,
1: hour, yeah. For yeah,
0: it's, yeah. it's unreal. It's just an unrealistic expectation for our teachers in this com- um, in this country.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, one thing that I always think about, and especially when people talk to me about racism, is my mom was born, my grandmother was born in and in, in um. In South Carolina, she's from South Carolina. She grew up in a shed on on a sharecropper's farm. Her and her five sisters they all migrated up north because everybody migrated up north during that time but my mom was born in 1960 and i tell people i'm like my mom can tell me a time when she was drinking from one fountain my mom can remember that you know yeah. i'm one generation away it's not yeah. five generations away it's not seven generations mm-hmm. i can sit down with my mother and i can have a conversation about how it was to be in segregation and that's how real racism is still in our country that's yeah. how real it is for a lot of us you know yeah. your mom from mississippi you're from kentucky
3: yeah. um,
0: south carolina and if we can sit down with our parents and still have a conversation about segregation and how they had to deal with it that is just the reality that's not a that's not something we're just it's making not ancient about, history right? no. it's not ancient history you know um but i'm 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 super excited that we um we got to talk about a lot of these things tonight because these are all the questions that we get (laughs) like how are we supposed to do this and how are we going to do that and how are we going to do an unequal pay? i mean and quite frankly make the world go out there and make the world that you want to see you know you want to figure out you want to figure out how to help black people you create content that we can be in you create the work environment that we can thrive in you know i mean we're going to create it ourselves anyway but if you want us to thrive, create environments where we can thrive as well.
3: Yeah. You know,
0: um, and 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 change this world yourself. You know, it's yeah. not up to us to change the world. We're only in this country. What are we like? Forty million? <laughs> forty right. million? Oh, it's like what? Three hundred, three hundred million people. We are forty million. Right. We yeah. are forty million. Okay. The odds, you know, the the math is there. Like we can't. We can try, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but we can't do it on ourselves. So it is going to be a collaborative thing. And I do do appreciate a lot of the companies that are coming out and that are saying, you know what, we are going to do something different. I do think it's going to be a beautiful time for us, Jeffrey, Mm-hmm. Uh, after the coronavirus. Get yeah. ready, Jeffrey. Get ready.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm too old to be in Team Beat, but maybe I'll be in AARP, AARP centerfold or something
0: like
1: that. I'm way too young to be in AARP. Um,
2: um, Jeffrey, I did want to ask you uh, one more question because we talked about it on Tuesday with the girls. And so I'm a big history buff and I look at like, just historically, whether it's the entertainment industry or not, like patterns. And I remember people, and I was telling Tish, I was like, there's gonna be a recession in 2020. Everything, it's gonna be a hot, natural mess. We have to get ready because I had this like wealth advisor, and he told me, Darquaia, you don't have to worry about a recession. See, in a recession, everybody, they get super freaked out because there's a lot of stuff happening and people lose their jobs. But he was like, money never leaves. It just changes hands. And so me and Tish, we've like talked about during the Great Depression, that was like the golden age of Hollywood. And I really think that with COVID and with the recession that we're kind of going into again or that we're in right now with so many people losing their jobs um yeah. the thing that remains constant which is the pattern is content because even in a recession people still watch content and yeah. so how like what advice can you give to all of the artists that are watching out here right now um so that they can put themselves like well first off do you think that it's going to be like another like the second um golden age, I guess of Hollywood, but diversified um, yeah. <laughs> do you think that that is actually going to happen because? when I think about the future, I get really excited because I feel like we, the system is falling and now it's going to be built back up again. And I think that as black people, we're going to be able to rise and, and capitalize on that finally in a new space. Do you think that? And if so, like what advice can you give to people to get ready for that?
3: Well,
1: you you know, I think a lot of stuff is going to be moving towards digital, you know, platforms. I think studios are putting out films online. Um, which is great i think people are consuming stuff online um you know the, kind of the golden age of hollywood was a weird time because the studios kind of ran everything and they kind of you know they would contract their actors and you know tell them how they could go out and who they could date and who they could do all that like wow. um but i think we're gonna i think content is key because people always want to be an, entertained or informed um and people entertaining it like sometimes when you want to just not deal with the world you, you want to watch something right. you watch tv yeah. so i just tell people again this is, goes back to creating your your own content it's like i think take the time to find out what you're passionate about um don't try to chase trends
3: mm.
1: um i will say one thing that i'm struggling with really hard um is i do feel like i want to say something you know about the, the state of the world and with, about racism I don't know quite how to do it because I'm battling with the part of myself that is Martin Luther King. That's always been like, you know what I'm saying? Like talk to people and and you know engage and change hearts. Um, and I've never tapped into my anger, you know. So there's a part of me that wants to tap into that, but I'm kind of nervous about what that would look like. So,
3: yeah, I- um,
1: but you know, I think create stuff that you're passionate about and create stories that are human stories, um, and. People, that's what people always want. They want something they connect with. Um.
0: Yeah, and and also I'm so sick, and I'm, I'm just gonna put this out there to you I do think that there is a place for all films, but I'm so sick and tired of seeing slave films. We have so many stories, so many stories to tell. And I mean, I love a good story about how we overcome and being the bigger person. And that narrative is a really great Hollywood narrative. But there's just so many beautiful stories to be told out there, and the reason why I'm such a, you know, lover of your work, Jeffrey, is because you're such a good storyteller, and your stories are just so diverse and different, you know. And you know, before I met you, I had never met a person who had such a different perspective, a person of color that in this industry who had a different perspective that wasn't of the black struggle in the hood or slave story or the down South, let me, we shall overcome, you know? And it was as a person who is such a big thinker, I'm just like, there's so much more to the world than this, you know? Um, And I just feel like we need more storytellers out there who are going to tell stories that are different, you know, that are different.
1: Yeah, I think we can all tap into our lives to tell stories you know, in the present, I think, you know, you can, yes, knowing about history is good, but it's, you know, it's, it is true. We've had a, we've had a whole lot of slave movies.
3: Yeah, a lot, a lot. You have to mentally prepare
2: yourself for that. Like, you know, I have to be like, oh, okay. I have to watch this so I can, you know, keep my black card or whatever because you, yeah. you can't like not know yeah. about certain like if you never think love Jones people gonna be like mm, or best yeah. man like who are
3: you <laughs>
2: but I mean sometimes I'm like okay let me do it on a day where I'm like relaxed and like you know all of that even that is like trauma because it's just yeah. like I am not just a slave. No. I, like, like, you know, there was a whole history to Africans before we even came to this country. The world is so old. Yeah. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? And like, I, I just, I, I I personally can't. Even in this country, there's so, that's why Issa Rae just killed the game Because before it was like you were a ghetto black girl or you were a bougie educated whatever black girl. And she was like, no, th- like, there are black girls out there where we are educated we are smart but we still like to twerk too you know what yeah. i mean like, <laughs> like i like to twerk too but i can also be articulate you know yeah. my birthday was last week and we had a twerking contest and we gave a hundred dollars out me and my sister to the winner so you <laughs> know, it was just like i just when i saw Issa ray it was like i saw myself for the first time because i mean even even you and your history being like a biracial black gay man, that's a story. Like why like we were, we're such a rich, beautiful people that you like you can't just tell me that I was a slave. And even within that slave narrative, they don't tell you all of the different aspects. Of slavery, either, right. like my mom had to break that down to me, so even yeah. if that's annoying is because you're even nitpicking the scenarios within slavery, you know, with
3: me. <laughs> i awkward as fuck. It's
2: like, yeah, thank you, Javon. I, you know? And Callie said twerking is a part of our culture. It comes from African dances. So, you know, I think that's why white people love it, because they're just like, How do you do that? And I mean clearly it's ancestral. I can do it because it's
3: yeah.
2: so you know, yay. Okay. But. Yeah,
0: no, I I agree, but um um oh, you want to know what I want to ask you? We we've asked everybody this this yeah. week about the protest. I'm gonna let you ask Darko because it's your okay. Tour. Well, wait, let me ask you, Jeffrey, have you
2: been um out protesting in LA? I haven't
1: been out um okay. because of, mostly because of the COVID stuff, but I, I yeah. I'm, I'm definitely yeah. being a keyboard warrior.
2: Okay, but you know what? Let's just talk about that too because you know. Everybody, I think that a lot of my, me and my friends, we've talked about that, how like activism has many faces. You have black people who are shaming other black people who aren't going out. We talked about this Tish, who mm-hmm. aren't going out and protesting. And, you know, you, there's so many things that you can do. You can sign petitions, you can, um, you can donate to bailout funds. And I just, I just, it, it really hurts my spirit that, even the other black people are shaming other black people because that's still a way to keep us divided. Yeah. Like we're not unified, we're still divided. But I went out protesting, Jeffrey, wow. and um and I was, you know, scared about COVID. But I was like, you know, when my grandkids asked me, Did I march? I'm not I'm not going out like that. I gotta be like, Yep, I did, and I gotta have pictures. Oh.
3: Well now me. you feel like that but, with the yeah. grandkids. I'm gonna have yeah. to um, go on test. Um,
2: I was was like, I had that thought, but I also feel like it's if you're convicted in your spirit. But some of these chants when I went out protesting, like I was like, you know, the person is is shouting out and they were like, you know, uh, no justice, no peace. When do we want it? Right now. Shut it down. And like, I think Callie brought up one that's like, you gonna lose your job. You (laughs) And just so there's so many chants. So if you were leading your protest, so Imagine with me if you were leading your own protest. What would your chant be?
1: Ah, uh, Tish, you should have told me this ahead of time. Have so cool. um,
3: a chant. Yeah. Oh man,
2: you're leading it, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> People are gonna respond however you want them to respond. Oh, man.
3: A really
1: good I, would have, I would just um, probably it would it would just probably be from from my religion about where it's changing the world one heart at a time. So it's not as aggressive, it's not an aggressive chant, but it's kind of a chant that speaks to how I think. That's
2: beautiful. Change
1: the world one heart at a time.
2: Change the world one heart at a time. Yeah, that's beautiful, Jeffrey. I love that.
3: I love that. Change the
2: world one heart at a time. Change the world one yeah, heart at a
3: time. We're going to start twerking.
2: <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for being with us today. This of is course. like really amazing. I mean, you just are like dropping these gems. I mean, you, you spoke to me, so I know everybody else on this call got so much out of it. Literally. Oh, well,
1: thank, you. thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, um... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I was okay. gonna say, we'll just keep changing the world one heart at a time.
2: Yeah.